The Civil Engineering Podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network, which can be found at cement.media. That's cement, C-E-M-E-N-T dot media. Welcome to this episode of the Civil Engineering Podcast, the first podcast dedicated to helping civil engineering professionals succeed in work and life. This is an exciting episode because we're going to look at the present and future of work in engineering and architecture. We want to understand how will things look in the future, the great resignation, hybrid work, so on and so forth. I'm your host, Anthony Fasano. In this episode of the Civil Engineering Podcast, I'm going to be talking with Peter Atherton, licensed professional engineer and president and founder of Actions Prove, about an in-depth study that we did together about the state of the industry and talent market and how companies can compete in this fast-changing world. EMI got together with Actions Prove, and a survey was conducted through a third-party vendor with over 300 engineers and architects in North America, and really what we explored were some of the key workplace issues by age, gender, role, and years of experience. And the findings showed how employers can really attract and retain top talent amidst this great resignation and kind of position themselves for greater growth and prosperity going forward. We wrote a full report. It's called The Present and Future of Work in Engineering and Architecture. You can get it right by going to our website, engineeringmanagementinstitute.org, or going to futureofworkinaec.com. Either one of those will get you the report. And really, Pete and I are going to dive into it in this episode, and we're kind of going to run through some of the findings, and I think you'll find it really interesting. Now, before we get started, this is a free show, and our sponsors do help us keep it free. And now I'd like to thank our sponsor for this episode, Collier's Engineering and Design. Collier's Engineering and Design is a multidiscipline engineering firm with over 1,800 employees in 63 offices nationwide and growing fast. Collier's Engineering and Design maintains an internal culture that is nurtured through the promotion of integrity, collaboration, and socialization. Their employees enjoy hybrid work environments, continuous career advancement, health and wellness offerings, and programs and projects that have a positive impact on society. Collier's Engineering and Design stays on the cutting edge of technology, and their entrepreneurial approach to expansion provides personal and professional development opportunities across the firm. Leadership's dedication to the well-being of their employees and their families is demonstrated throughout the wide range of benefits and programs available to them. For more information, visit their career page on the website at colliersengineering.com. With that, let's jump into this week's episode and look at the present and future of work in our field. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. Welcome aboard, everyone. We're excited for this episode today. We're simulcasting this episode across two podcasts the Civil Engineering Podcast, and the AEC Leadership Today Podcast. Anthony Fasano here from EMI. I'm here with Pete Atherton from Actions Prove, and we're excited to bring you information from the study that we did again this year together that's focusing this year on the present and future of work in the AE industry. Pete, welcome aboard. It's great to see you, Anthony. It's great to be here, and it's great to do our second joint podcast. Yeah, it is. Uh, we're excited because there are so many things going on in this industry. If you're a regular listener, you're aware of that. Obviously, going through COVID, having people, everybody work at home. Now there's kind of hybrid for some companies. Some companies there isn't. We've got infrastructure funding, all kinds of infrastructure projects. We've got supply and supply chain issues. <laughs> so there's just lots of stuff going on. And this 
study that we did really served to kind of get a feel across the industry for AE professionals on what their thoughts are on employment, on the industry going forward, and really uncovered some very interesting things. So before we jump in, Pete, you want to talk a little bit about the process that we went through to accumulate this data? And we've been friends and sort of talking about the industry for a long time now. And at the end, as before COVID, but then certainly as COVID sort of started to take hold, we were having conversations and seeing a lot of trends in the industry throughout 2020. And at the end of 2020, you said, okay, there's a lot of things happening. There's a lot of change. What's going to be permanent? What's going to be temporary? And so we wanted to capture what was going on in the industry. Last year, we initiated the future of work in AEC to really sort of capture the moment. We got a lot of great feedback on that report. And then certainly as last year started to unfold and we had the great resignation really taking hold, we had you know the return to the office. We're starting to kind of struggle with that a little bit. What does that mean? What is hybrid? Is hybrid going to be permanent now? We saw that there weren't only macro level changes, but there were micro level changes. And so this year, as you mentioned, we wanted to dive into both the present and the future of work. We really wanted to figure out what was happening and why. And further, we've both been having conversations with leaders and managers and there was a lot of questions about what was the state of their, their firms? What are the state of the industry? And in this, by design, we ask questions that we know that leaders and senior managers want to know the answers to, but maybe were hesitant in some cases and maybe afraid in other cases to ask. And so we wanted to dive right in. And again, the context for a lot of this is also employee engagement, retention, and belonging, because we know that those are drivers of value, sustainers of value, and really just show a commitment to the things that are mattering today, which is people and culture. One other point too, is as we were finalizing the report, we shared some advanced copies of this report. And similar to last year, we're getting some really good feedback. I'm excited for this and excited for you know the basis of this report and, and what we're able to share with the industry. Yeah, for sure. And one last thing that I'll mention before we kind of dive into some of the content of the report is that we did go through a process with a, a third party. We worked with a company that specifically does data collection, research, report preparation, and they gathered the data for us. So this wasn't just you know EMI and Actions Group going out, surveying people, getting information, putting something together. We used a very reputable firm that we've used them two years in a row now. They've done really great work. And so that's an important part of this process. I think there are a lot of white papers and different things out there, and you want to really understand the source of it. And we had really good data in terms of different types of companies, different types of organizations. And if you download the report, which is available at futureofworkinaec.com, you'll be able to read all that and see all the data and see all the really awesome charts and graphs. And if you're watching this on the YouTube version, you'll also be able to see some of that that we're going to put up on the screen here as we go through it. Let's jump in a little bit. And Pete, let's start off. I'm going to ask you a question to get things rolling here. Why would you say that the great resignation isn't over just yet? How did the report kind of tell us that? The great resignation, right? It's something we've been hearing about for a long time, at least well over a year now. I remember last summer having conversations with regional leader groups, and even into early last fall, and I'd mentioned great resignation, people say, what are you talking about? So it's been around for a while, but really probably catching hold within the last year of it being more sort of in the vernacular. But I see it in my work with firms where people can't really get ahead. So multiple firms saying something along the lines of, I'm able to hire three people, but then I lose two. 
And the three that I'm hiring are junior and the two that I'm losing are mid-level. So am I really gaining in that? So I see it happening and we saw it in the data. And one interesting thing is if you read some of the, the real great work that's been done across industries, really across the world on the Great Resignation by the McKinsey's and the Bain's, based on our research, we're really no different than a lot. I mean, what's fueling the Great Resignation across industries across the world is very much the same things that are fueling it in our industry based on the data. There are transactional components to that, money being one, but there's also a lot of relational. And relational really is cited as the top reasons for that. And so as it relates to talent, I mean, we've been dealing with sort of the war for talent since before the great resignation happened. Certainly during COVID, there's a little bit of a pause for a while, but then it started picking up and obviously picking up steam and, and maybe continuing. And, and part of that is just strong public and private sector work. There was a, a little bit of a delay, but then there was a snapback. And, and now we're looking at the infrastructure bill. And we're also looking at very strong housing demand. Now, maybe it's not priced affordably, but there'll be solutions to that through manufactured housing and fabrication through technology and that type of thing. But a lot of the, the fuel for our industry is still going to be there because that's one of the questions that we asked in the study. What are you thinking about further growth? And adding 80% of the respondents said, oh, our firms were expecting growth in 2022, despite the, you know, what you mentioned, the inflationary pressures and supply chain and all that. There has been a wrinkle in recent months with inflation really taking hold further. Has the outlook changed? And, and I don't think so. If you really, I mean, there might maybe for some firms, some sectors, and who knows, but at this time, I think when you sort of have a conversation about it, the thought is that we're still an industry that is probably going to grow. But to dive into the data. So we asked the question, again, one of the questions that people want to know the answers to, but might be hesitant to ask, would you consider leaving your current employer in the next 12 months for the right opportunity? And the data came back almost two and three, so 61% specifically said that they would at least consider. Half of that group, so about 30% or 26, 30% of that overall said they would strongly consider. And that was skewed to, to younger professionals. And, and I think that's pretty significant. And we could talk more about that. But one other kind of fine point on that, as we designed the survey, 61% of the people said that they would consider leaving their current employer. We dug a little deeper into the 39% uh, of people who said no, and we asked them, okay, well, what might entice you to leave your current employer? And asked them a number of questions. Only a quarter of that group said, well, none of the above. And we asked about you know, substantially higher pay, better quality of life, more interesting work, better training and development, greater job security, greater autonomy, more flexibility. We asked all those questions. So with 25% of that group saying, well, no, none of those, uh, and they had an opportunity for other. So if you do the math, it, does that mean that really 10% of our industry couldn't be enticed? And there's a lot of enticement going on. And, and our, is that 10% plus or minus our major owners? It's still here, and I continue to see it happening. We certainly start the data. Those numbers are really kind of eye-opening and fascinating to me. I mean, if you're a firm owner, you have 300 employees, to think that almost 200 of them would consider leaving for the right opportunity and a quarter of them or 75 of them would strongly consider it is definitely concerning. 
Pete and I have done a lot of work with firms in this industry, so it wasn't necessarily alarming to us when we saw the data. I think, if anything, it confirmed what we've been hearing in the industry. But it's still when you just look at the data and you look at the numbers, I mean, it is concerning, which is why as we go through this report, and we're going to get to this a little bit later on, there are some directives and things that we found that companies that have been able to have really good retention, that have been very people-focused, what they've been able to do to kind of weather the storm, if you will, through the this great resignation and some of the other challenges going on. So the report is not just meant to throw all this data at you. It is meant to be actionable and give you some things that you can do. And like I said, we're going to jump into a couple of them today as well, and you'll be able to see some of those for yourself and maybe try to implement we didn't want to just ask the question, hey, are you considering leaving your car? We dove into you know, the reasons why. We want to know why. And I would ask you about that, Anthony, from your perspective as we dove into the data. But I mean, you made a great point with we were not at all looking for just to provide information and data. This survey was designed like last year's survey for relevant, actionable insight, not just the, there's a lot of information out there, but we really tried to dive into the insight. So that being said, what did the survey find as far as the reasons professionals are considering leaving their employers? Yeah, this is a, a big one. In fact, this is if you do end up downloading the report, and again, it's at futureofworkinaec.com, you'll see that there's a lot of colorful charts and graphs in there to try to bring the data to you in a way that you can digest it. But my favorite one, and both of our favorite, is figure number three. And you'll be able to see that if you're watching the YouTube video now, it's up on the screen. If you're not, don't worry, you could see it in the report. But figure number three is titled Reasons for Job Turnover by Generation. And that's exactly what it is. And it goes through all of these top reasons people cited for leaving. And then it gives you the different categories by years of experience. So under 10 years, 10 to 19 years, and 20 or more years. So I'll tell you right off the bat, the top three reasons that were cited were, number one, they're looking for career advancement, which we've been kind of talking to companies about for years. And this is really putting an emphasis on it now. The second one was they're seeking a more flexible schedule. And the third one is my compensation is not competitive. And drilling down a little bit on some of those numbers, the the one that people are saying the most, which is looking for career advancement, 47 of those were under 10 years experience, 50, 10 to 19, and then 37 at 20 or more. So it's pretty consistent actually across the board. Yeah, there's a little bit more with people with less years of experience, but even your 20 or more you have a significant number of people that are looking for more career advancement. And that's why obviously what Pete and I do a lot is focused on you know career advancement, leadership development. It's just a critical thing right now. I mean, that's what people are looking for. And then of course, seeking a more flexible schedule. This is something right now people are looking for. I mean, we had COVID and it was, we went from nobody can ever work from home in the engineering industry to overnight, everyone's working from home 100% in the engineering industry. And now What's happening is there's many firms are faced with this challenge of what do we do now? Do we try to get people to all come back to the office? Do we keep people home? Do we do a hybrid? How much flexibility is involved in it? So that's a huge, huge challenge right now. And it's real. And we've been working with firms to help them develop some hybrid work environment guidelines at EMI and really diving into this because what happens is like employees want clarity. Like if you're going to go work somewhere, you want to understand what your work life is going to look like. Am I going to the office? Am I driving an hour every day? Gas prices, et cetera. Do I have the flexibility? So that's obviously still top of people's mind. And that's a big one that people are going to continue to think about. And then of course, that third one is my compensation is not competitive. And 
when people are looking to make a move, of course, compensation is always going to be part of that, part of that discussion. You know, they always say you're not going to move unless you're getting a significant increase in salary. I don't think that that statement is as important as it used to be. I do think people are looking for some other things. And this, I think this report proves that. But one other thing I'll say, Pete, that we may want to talk a little bit about here is the next couple, which are high level of stress and too much work for one person. And that high level of stress is actually mostly cited by people with 20 or more years of experience, which is important, an important point. And that's something that you've had a lot of experience with. You've written a book on burnout, experience it yourself. I mean, that's a big one. It is. And, and one point too, I, I, you know, as I've spoken over the last six months, specifically with different leaders in you know, national conferences or through webinars or one-on-one, when you say that the number one factor for people leaving is not compensation, there is a little skepticism. You know, they say these things, but at the end of the day, it's about the dollar. The data shows, and in our industry and across industries, that money is absolutely important. That is a transactional component, but not the biggest factor. And we definitely found that. And, and even just anecdotally, so talking to multiple firms, leaders, C-suites, who people have, you know, they've been feeling the pressure of salaries. I will say in practice, when there's a huge gap, people have come to leaders and said something to the extent of, I'm almost, I love the culture here. I love our relationship. I can see some career development, but there's such a gap here that I feel like I'm doing my family a disservice by not taking this opportunity, even though my career, it's going to be a little harder for me. We can now take this next step. If you just neutralize the money, it doesn't mean match it. It doesn't in in a lot of these cases, but if you can neutralize the money factor, I think if you do offer career advancement and not just training, but advancement, there's a nuance there and the flexible work schedule and allow people to kind of win at work and win at life. I think you just get neutral on the money and it happens. So there's skepticism, but at the same time, I see and I hear the money plays a factor, but not the biggest piece. There's so much data that we went through with our third party, and, and there's only so much that makes it in the report, but we really wanted to look at these generational differences. And the idea of this heat map, this figure three was, was really great because it did, again, we're not just focused in on the, if we really want to understand what's going on in our organization and why and at different levels, because a nuanced approach is absolutely critical to our success moving forward. If we just took the top three, we would end at that. Well, as you mentioned, if you go to number four, five, six, and seven, you see that those are affecting people with more than 20 years experience. And so the high level of stress, too much work for one person, also not feeling valued at work. That people were the highest group that didn't feel valued at work with the 20 plus folks. This for a reason I might leave my organization. Two times, you know, people with 20 years experience were two times more likely to cite ineffective leadership team. So are we really addressing some of these issues as it relates to stress? So, you know, diving into that, we asked that question similar to last year. Is work stress affecting your physical and or mental health? This year, 65% of the respondents said yes. That's up from 49% last year. Now, 49% was pretty significant, but 65%, and it's, it's part of overall stress. Now, maybe some, there's a lot going on in life. We talked about some of the mental uh, health concerns overall. We talked about the shadow pandemic in the report. When almost two-thirds of our people are saying it's causing physical and or mental health concerns, the stress. Uh, you know, the question is, uh, do we want to be part of the solution at work, or are we just are adding the stress? It's just a, a different discussion. Ultimately, this gets to your point, and I see this in not just throughout firms, but particularly leadership teams. The stress 
eventually can lead to burnout. And burnout is a big deal. And we asked that question too. Do you feel burned out at work? 32% said always or often, 47% sometimes, and only 21% said rarely or never. So that's 79%, at least sometimes. It is a big deal. There's a redefinition of burnout. It has a lot of different features, but it is a bigger deal. It's not overwhelmed leads eventually to this, but if someone's burned out, if a team is burned out, I mean, it leads to a burnout disengagement cycle and really a lot of sort of dysfunction or lack of function in an organization. And it is a big deal. Definitely. It's something that I've heard in talking with engineering professionals on the phone one-on-one hey, I want to find a new job. I just can't keep up here anymore. Just too much work. Or when I we ask, we survey professionals around some of our training programs, what could your company do to help you be more engaged, happier in the workplace? The answer, we've had the answer multiple times, hire more people. And so it's obvious that the stress and, and the burnout is definitely there. Hiring more people is part of the answer. But as we dove in a report, is it more full-time traditional employees? Can it be part-time? Can it be independent professional freelancers? You have to have some different skills from an organizational development front to get there. If someone is burned out, right? Before COVID, the World Health Organization reclassified and redefined burnout. Burnout reclassified it as an occupational phenomenon. So there's two components. There's an individual component for sure, but there's also an organizational component. And the def- by definition, right, there's three characteristics. If somebody's feeling burned out, I mean, it is feelings of loss of energy, depletion, and exhaustion, right? But it's also increasing mental distance from our job, maybe some cynicism or some negativism and reduced efficiency, reduced efficacy. So if you're seeing that, I mean, at some point, the stress comes to a point where, well, just hire more people, whatever. That's starting to creep into some cynicism and negativism. Where If you're sensing that, there's just a different approach. And sometimes just adding more people is part of the solution, but that will not be the full solution if sort of burnout has taken hold. You can't just pull more people onto the ship and all of a sudden everything is fine. It has to be, you know, it's like a lot of firms too, Pete, they'll do an acquisition and say, hey, we just made an acquisition, but that's just bringing more busy people on board. It's not necessarily going to make anyone less stressed. Right. Well, and one interesting phenomenon when we saw in the data, right? So there is this differentiation of more than 20 plus year experience, twice as likely to cite high level of stress than people with less than 10 years experience, and one and a half times more likely to, well, and had cited stress as a reason to leave. That really uncovered something that we've spoken about and that I see in the industry, and that gets into the shape and the function of our industry. And because of the great recession 10 to 15 years ago, I mean, there was a whole group of people who didn't enter our industry or maybe who were young and back in 2008, 9, and 10 that didn't stay with the industry. They got laid off and didn't come in. So that bubble 10 to 15 years later are middle managers. Like there are project managers. And that's why a lot of people say we have no or little middle. Well, it's because the shape of our industry is not a pyramid as it may have been 20, 30 years ago. Our shape is more of an hourglass. Given the nature of our work, the nature of our industry, there's certainly a pressure point in the middle. Our managers are feeling a lot of pressure. And there's a lot that that's one of the more complicated jobs we have. And we'll get into training a little bit, but we don't often train for that. Because of the nature of our industry, we've got to stamp things, client service. The pressure also flows up. It's not flowing down. And so because we have this hourglass, when it relates to getting stuff done, serving the client, the pressure does flow up to senior talent. And, and we're seeing that in the data. And I've seen that for a long time. 
And at the same time, there is frustration below the pinch point and I'm not getting career development opportunities. I'm not seeing advancement. I do some work, but maybe I don't get the feedback on whether I did it right or not. And so this sort of shape of our industry, and if maybe the shape of most firms as a result, that's causing, we have to think about work a little differently, not just add more people. There's some other factors. And we talked about some of those in the report too. We want to get into the actionable items. We came up through this report with seven directives that describe what people first AE companies kind of do differently in order to kind of minimize resignation and stay engaged with their workforce. And all seven of them are really outlined in detail in the report. Again, you can get the report of future of work in AEC.com. That's future of work in AEC.com. We're not going to go through all seven of them today, but we are going to touch on two of them. However, before we dive into those two, I'm just going to read through all seven of them just so you can kind of get a feel for what they are. And the first one is to understand that the great resignation is far from over. Pete talked about that earlier and we're totally on board with that. Number two, commit to training and development as a strategic asset. And I'm going to speak on that one in just a minute here. Number three, use a people-centric data-driven approach to surface hotspots. And Pete will dive into that one in just a few minutes. Number four, consider quality of life as a critical benefit in the employee relationship. That's a big one. And that's kind of what we talked about already a little bit with the burnout and the stress. Number five is to revisit the company's mission and vision. People want purpose. They want to be working towards something. Number six, strengthen hiring practices for more part-time and freelance professionals. So Pete also talked about that as being a potential part of the solution. And then number seven is to design a future of work that is above all flexible. I mean, flexible work is something not that people are hoping for today. It's something that people are expecting today. First, I want to talk a little bit about number two, commit to training and development as a strategic asset. At the Engineering Management Institute, most of what we do is corporate learning and development, project management, people leadership, seller doer, BD training. And when we work with companies, one of the things that we tell them is, The reason that training is such a good investment is because it gives you three different returns on your investment. One is obviously you're developing your people. And if it's project management or people leadership, usually it can really drive up profitability of the company. Secondly, if you're developing people in that manner, they're going to stay on board because believe it or not, these training programs are not that common in the industry. Companies just don't provide a lot of training. So they're going to see you as rare and they're going to want to stay on board with you. The other kind of return on investment is the recruiting or the attraction side of things. We've done multiple surveys at EMI that confirm also what we've confirmed in this report, which is above all else, people want learning and development. They want career growth and support. And so if you're able to talk about that in an interview or publicize that across your social media channels, there are going to be top talent out there that are going to look at that and say, wow, this firm is offering these kind of career development support tools and programs and learning and development. I want to work at a company like that. So when you think about the word training, which I think is a kind of a watered down word these days, and a lot of people just think of training as that getting on a couple of webinars, which is why we try to use the word learning and development wherever we can. But when you think about it, understand that it's absolutely a tool that can help you to build profitability by developing better project managers, better people leaders, but it's also a tool that will keep people there and will bring people to your company. It's what I like to describe it in, you want to create that magnetic workplace where people really want to stay there. And training is a critical component of that. And I'm sure Pete, you've heard the same in talking with some of your clients and the firms you work with. Absolutely. 
People don't come out of school with the same skill sets, and we really need to train them up, uh, you know, not just from a, a technical perspective, not just from a scope, schedule, and budget project management protect. That's absolutely essential, but it's also in the people skills and the culture and how we do things. If we're not even training on what we do, that's going to be hard to say on how we do it. And that's sort of the secret sauce in a lot of organizations is how we do our work because there is competition to what we do, but how we do it and why we do it. That's the difference. And, and with training programs, I mean, you layer that in, that's going to be a, di- a strategic differentiator. Yeah, 100%. And again, yes, our firms, Pete and myself, we do offer obviously coaching and training, but that's why we went to a third party. And we reached out to a lot of professionals across the industry because this information is not coming from us. It's coming from them. And I would guarantee you that if you polled your firm, you did a poll within your firm and asked similar questions to what we asked, you're going to get similar answers. So your people also want these things. And we're hoping that by giving you some of these directives, you'll be able to kind of implement it and kind of move forward and, t- and take some valuable action on this. Now, Pete, you're going to talk a little bit about the next one, which is really interesting. Use a people-centric, data-driven approach to surface hotspots. Talk about that one. We've talked about it a little bit with uh, just looking at the heat map, that figure three, where we can d- identify hotspots of what's happening in an organization at different levels and understand the reasons for that. Because from an organizational development perspective, we want to understand what's happening and why, where, because you don't build Rome in a day. You figure out what the hotspot is and you, you address that and sort of build momentum and just strategic plan or organizational development execution. You have to really know where to start. So the hotspots is, is key, but people-centric, data-driven. I mean, big picture, I mean, we're as a society becoming more people-centric. I mean, everything's customized. You know, our Amazon orders, you know, what we, music we want to listen to, Netflix. I mean, so it's definitely a customization society, right? So we're expecting that. People are expecting that. One size absolutely doesn't fit all. So it's definitely people-centric is the way to go, but data-driven. In the report, I mean, we talked about the generations already, but there's major differences. There's still a gender gap. I mean, if we look at you know the reasons, there's more reasons why women are considering and leaving our industry than men. And the gap is, you know, the, some of the initial feedback I've gotten is that's something I've gotten from some of the advanced reports that have been out there is, wow, we still have a generation gap. And so we have to understand that if we want to attract and retain more women to our industry, we've got to continue to do different. And maybe you know we're on the right path and we're closing the gap. I mean, let's see based on the data, but there's still a gap. And so we have to really dive into why. So that's why the data-driven approach is key. One thing when we're looking at this data, I mean, one of the things that I think about is in some of the you know back to the office discussions is a report like this really requires from a leadership and a management team perspective, different type of thinking. So a lot of times, and especially in our busy, and again, a lot of leaders and senior managers haven't had our reset time because we've been on the go from COVID starting. A lot of people society-wise and in our industry have had a reset. And there's a fundamental change right now where people have redefined winning. They want to win at both work and life while making a difference and having an impact. And they're making a valued decision on whether their current employer, whether this career is something that allows them to win at work and life. And so that is fundamentally happening. When we look at this data and we want to see how we want to react to it, I think it's reflexive thinking is going to hurt us. 
we really need reflective. And so the reflexive is that wasn't the way before. That wasn't the way I grew into this industry. Things are just very different now. Gen Z is seeing a much different world than Gen X had in the 90s. We have to be reflective and not reflexive. But in our busyness, a lot of times we're reflective and sometimes we're we're sort of sending the wrong message, even if in our hearts, we don't mean it. There's no malice. We're just being reflective. So kind of a big picture thing. One other take I'll share is when we get into people-centric, when we're looking at things across generations, across gender, it requires more nuance, career development plans. We still have to perform as an organization. We have to perform as teams. In order to make sure we have unity of purpose and we're able to perform, the more nuanced we get, and we have to be nuanced and and people-centric based on the data and based on not just in our industry, but across, but the more nuance we have with our people, the more clear we need to be with vision, goals, and objectives for the organization, the more clear we have to be with mission and values, because only with that clarity can we get connection and alignment to align someone's personal goals with that of the team, with that of the client, with that of the organization. And so we need to get more nuanced. But if we get too nuanced without the clarity of the big picture, we're not going to be as successful as a team and we're probably going to lose some of that culture. And I think that's the rub in a lot of organizations. So again, we want to be attractive, supportive, and dynamic, but we also need to perform. Figuring out that balance is going to be key. As you mentioned, one of the directives is future. We're going to be flexible overall and really driving to a point of success from anywhere, but success being important. We're here to do a job and we're here to have success in our industry. And what we do matters. It absolutely matters, but it's hard work and it doesn't just happen by accident. That's a key piece. We absolutely need to understand what problem we're solving, but we have to solve that problem in the context of of some of the great things that we do as an industry. Pretty much everything we do as an industry has a a significant impact. These are critical factors in terms of long-term sustainable growth for AE firms. We truly believe that. Once again, the report is titled Present and Future of Work in Engineering and Architecture, an in-depth study of the state of the industry and talent market and how companies can compete in a fast-changing world. The report is available for download at futureofworkinaec.com. So you can grab the report there. And really, if you can just implement a few of these directives, you will see improvements across the board. And if you can do more than a few, then you're even going to see more improvements. And it's all laid out for you in the report, all the data, charts, figures, the directives. It's there for you. We hope that you take it. We hope that you use it. And you can feel free to reach out to us if you have any questions. And Pete, it was fun doing this again. And I really look forward to doing it again next year and seeing what's changed again. Yes, it was uh, great to be able to talk about this. Again, we're just hitting some of the highlights. There's a lot more depth in the report, and we're just excited to support the industry in this matter, to support more people and solve some of the bigger problems, but on a very people-centric way. We hope that you're able to get the report, Future of Work in AEC.com. We look forward to any comments you have, whether you leave them on our podcasts and YouTube, or you reach out to us on LinkedIn. We're happy to connect with you. I hope you take this information and use it. We'll see you on the next episode. Take care. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Pete and also some of the data that we've been able to accumulate. And please consider going to the website, engineeringmanagementinstitute.org, and you'll see the button to download the report. 
download it, take a look at it, and please let us know if you have questions. If you do download the report, I'm going to email it to you, and you can just respond to that email with any questions that you might have around the report. Maybe you want to talk about how your company might implement some of these directives, whatever the case may be. We want to engage the community around this and understand your thoughts and feedback on it so we can make sure that this is useful information, right? I mean, you don't want to just do surveys to do surveys. They need to be useful information. All of the show notes for this episode, as usual, will be at civilengineeringpodcast.com. There you'll find a summary of all of the points we discussed in the episode, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during the episode. And until next time, I wish you the best in all of your civil engineering career endeavors. The Civil Engineering Podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network. The opinions on the show are those of the hosts and guests, not their employers. For information on EMI's people and project management skills training programs for civil engineering professionals, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.